Today on Relay Chain, we have a special episode for a few reasons. Number one, I have a new co-host, Ursula. Hello, Ursula. Hey, Joel. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to give an intro to yourself and uh, what you do at Parity? Sure. Ursula Okintons. I just joined Parity two months ago, so this is quite exciting for me to be here. And I'm a former journalist. Well, I guess like when you're a journalist, you'll always be a journalist. I just to be part of the El País newspaper, which is one of the largest European newspaper in the Spanish-speaking world. As you can see from my accent, I do speak Spanish. <laughs> and, and I've been working in the intersection between media and blockchain for the last six years. And I've been part of a civil media company. It was a small startup that we wanted to change the media ecosystem, implementing blockchain technology. Um, from New York. So, and now I've just joined Parity as a part of the public affairs team. Great. And we actually came to Tallinn, Estonia to do an interview in person with somebody that you knew from your days as a journalist, Thomas Henrik Ilves, the former president who implemented a lot of the digitization of the Estonian government and uh, processes in the country. Yes, Joe, indeed, I met Thomas Hendrik Ilves in Davos during the annual conference of the World Economic Forum. And he was quite interesting because he was one of the first person, at least head of state, that he knows how to code and he knows how to do politics. So it was quite interesting, everything that he was doing in this country. Yeah. And with that, we'll go to the interview with Thomas. Thank you, Mr. President Thomas Hendrik Ilves. We are here in Estonia. We just arrived with my colleague, uh, Joe Petrovsky, and we are delighted to be here and hosting this event. Well, I'm calling it an event because uh, today at uh, Polkadot, we're having our biggest event of the year, which is Decoded. And this is not part of this event, but uh, it's an extension through their podcast. This is my first time here. And to be honest, I've been always very curious about Estonia. It's a small Baltic nation of 1.3 million people, which is tiny compared with the rest of Europe. Don't be offended, Mr. President, but it's... Very it's, proud, it's, but small. <laughs> but you have such a big achievement, being one of the most entrepreneurial country in Europe and the most tech-savvy country in Europe as well. And one of the reasons that we came here from Switzerland and, and myself from Spain is because we wanted to interview in person. I know that Estonia has been a lot of issues in the past, and that's why you created this digital nation where citizens can vote, pay taxes, check medical records, and even register for business in minutes without leaving their home, which is amazing. Actually, you can do anything you would ever do with a government except for three things. Uh, getting married, you have to show up. Getting divorced, that's not so pleasant, you also have to show up. And finally, <clears throat> in order to transfer property, because we don't allow anonymous shell companies, so you have to, like, someone from the company has to show up. I mean, this is... Well, if you look at, you know, the problems that London and, well, the U.S. and the U.K. have with all kinds of funny shell companies and money laundering, well, we don't allow that. So you have to, 
you have if you want to buy something you have to show up but marriage and divorce i think that i actually read recently they want to make that easier so you don't have to actually show up to get married or divorced <laughs> that's impressive <laughs> Um, but the thing is that Estonia has been a global leader in the state of adoption of technology. And one thing that which is very curious, you guys adopted blockchain the year 2008. Well, yeah, I mean... It's Same like, year as the technology was created, at least on the public side. Well, I mean, what we did was basically, the issue is integrity. It's not, you know... I mean, most of the world says blockchain begins with a B. Bitcoin begins with a B. Bitcoin is blockchain. No. Um, <clears throat> I mean, so we use blockchain simply because once you go fully digital, you no longer have paper records. So if someone goes and changes your data, and since we everything is digital here, so I mean, your laws, we don't have, we don't have like a Hansard as they have in the in the UK or whatever, you know, paper copies of what was uh, what is a law. Court cases, they're all digital. Medical records, everything is everything is digitized. So if you, if someone by some weird in some weird way manages to get in there and change it, well, you just undermine either the health of an individual or you undermine the basis of society. So from since we had already been in 2008, we had been digitized for basically yeah, seven, eight years. Um, the idea was that, okay, we don't want anything. To, I mean, this is a vulnerability. If you're going to have digital records, you have to have something to maintain integrity. And the way to do it is with blockchain. I mean, I don't understand how all of these All of these co companies in the world and governments have digital records and they don't put it on blockchain just for security. Of course, if you look at how bad things are, I mean, if the United States federal government um, kept all of its data on federal employees, which was hacked, the famous OPM hack, but not only did they have them... I mean, just, I mean, they were not only were they not on blockchain, but in fact, they were in clear text. They were not even encrypted. So whoever stole it or whoever copied it, I mean, they didn't. Yeah, but you have this movement because on the year 2007, if I'm not wrong, you have this massive cyber attack. We did. And you didn't have a large budget as well. So you were very creative with a small budget and you were finding out new technologies. Well, fortunately, we also had one of the brightest minds that helped create blockchain was Estonian, or still is Estonian. He's, not, he's still alive, but yeah. I mean, he was even accused of being Satoshi, but he's not Satoshi. What's his name? Arto Buldas. He was the one who created Gartime? He's the current CEO of Gartime? No, he's not the CEO. The, the CEO is, I mean, he actually does have a PhD in math, but no, but it, uh, Arto Buldas is just a mathematician who came up with this idea. So he's the one who went to the government, knocked at your, your doors, and he presented what is what's blockchain to it, you? No, nah, I, I think it was more that, um, you know, we said, okay, we need to really worry about data integrity if we're going in this direction. 
and we want to go in this direction. So what do we do for data integrity? Security in terms of access is not enough because someone might find a way that we don't know about, but someone might find a way to get in there and do something nasty. Uh, I mean, of course, obviously the banks are the ones most interested in this because, right, I mean, change bank accounts. I mean, I mean, change, <laughs> change what people have in their bank account could be very bad. But in any case, so, <clears throat> but we had been worrying, <clears throat> we'd been worrying about the data integrity for a long time, but then, I mean, this kind of thing worked out. Yeah, so... You took a little different approach than other nation states, because if you look at like what they do in the U.S., you know, the, the U.S. approach is like, well, let's throw a ton of money at this and build a huge data center that that hosts everything. Um, and it also tends to be very secretive. There's, you know, like Snowden revelations kind of put out a lot of the stuff that was highly secret. Um, and a lot of your systems are actually quite distributed, and a lot of the software that you use is open source. So your systems are kind of like fundamentally from first principles very different than how other nations have gone about digitizing and can you talk about how you arrived at these decisions and um kind of like what what was what were your motivators in how you design a system all right well we have to go back to i mean the 1990s when uh we started getting serious about digitizing things and it became clear in the, toward the end of the 90s that the way things are done is not good enough. There, that if you're going to genuinely digitize public services and governance, you cannot use the standard models of security, which is, which you, I mean, to this day, you know, sort of email plus password, right? It, no, 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 no. And so we knew it had to be two-factor authentication. We knew it had to be end-to-end -end encryption. I mean, all the kind of basic stuff. I mean, all of this stuff already today is not probably not good enough, but at least compared to where things were <clears throat> at the turn of the century, it's still good. And so... So we figured out at least the two pillars. I mean, I say the entire system rests on three pillars, which is basically uh, secure identity, a distributed uh, distributed architecture. So the first two we figured out, and then, <clears throat> well, the the ID part simple. I mean, you just say okay, everyone has a unique number. You need a unique secure identity, and. Every, that is the basis. That is your identity. And this comes with a physical card and, and chip. I have. It comes with a physical chip card, yeah. I mean, you don't... I mean, these days, most people don't even use the, that physical part because, I mean, we have... You know, we just basically have a phone-based system. I use it these days because it's a big screen Whereas it's a little screen and I'm 67, so it's like, I mean, it's like if I'm looking at my phone, it's, I'm just looking at my phone, it's <laughs> right three centimeters away. So in order to read this tiny little, tiny little thing, because it's, it's a small, it's a phone, and it has to be in then encrypted, okay, that's no no-brainer. And then um, uh, using PKI, I mean, yeah, that's obvious. 
And then we have a distributed data exchange layer, which is which originally was, um, and for a long time, that basically every uh, every ministry, every agency, they had already had their own servers, and this would have been really expensive to put it all into one big big central database. But then we realize, well, it's actually also more secure if all, everything is separate. I mean, if you think about a ship, right? I mean, uh, an oil tanker. Until the Exxon Valdez, which ran aground uh, 25 years ago and was the biggest oil 1993 spin. in Alaska. Okay. Oh, you were there. Right? Yes. <laughs> That's why I remember. <laughs> okay. Well, so it's almost 30 years, right? In any case... The thing is that you know they had there was just one big hold, and if you run aground, it all comes out. Well, whereas I mean to think about data, I mean if if you have they're all little compartments. Okay, if if someone does break in, they're not going to get all of the data on everybody. So we have uh, so everyone had their own server. I mean every ministry, every agency. And so in order to access that server, you have to act. I mean, even if you're the, a member of the, if you're in the government and you're, say, in the ministry of, or the Department of Motor Vehicles, even you, if you want, if you're working there, you want to access something, you always have to access it via the secure system where you're identified. So that was the distributed data exchange layer. And that we just said, okay, who's going to come up with one? And um, so there was a company, Cybernetica, which has produced most of our geniuses, uh, or most of our geniuses have come out of there, came up with a distributed data exchange layer called X-Road. And if you want to read about it, you can go on to... If you want to see basically the idea behind it, my recommendation is to go into YouTube and write X-road and then long version. The long version is three and a half minutes, so the short version is really short. But anyway, so you can see how it works. There's a distributed data exchange layer, and then in 2007, we started working out, in 2008, implemented a keyless signature infrastructure, so that's basically blockchain, right? It's not quite the... And it's a permissioned, permissioned blockchain system, and so it's it's fast, it's instantaneous. It doesn't have all. I mean, it is not <clears throat> Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can say a lot of the stuff is obvious now about like two-factor authentication, but in the '90s, this was not obvious to people. Like, it was still. I mean, I remember my parents being afraid to you know use their credit cards online. Um, you should be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the little three-digit two-factor authentication on the card is not great. Um, not, not very secure. That's really but, not two-factor authentication. Right. <laughs> yeah, but this came from the 80s, right? Because the cyberpunk movement, especially in California, they were experimenting with digital signatures. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, basically, if you think about digitization that I mean even in the late 90s only th about a third of Americans even had a computer right I mean this was third of American households so it's even less right I mean one household four people and so um, people weren't thinking about this 
And also computer crime wasn't that rampant yet, uh, the way it is now. I mean, the first publicly admitted government hack was Moonlight Mile in 1999, in which the Russians hacked into the State Department. That was the first one that anyone will admit. I don't think it's the first one, but it's the first one that anyone said, hmm, this happened. Um, I mean, even this today, we don't know what, I mean, what's, what has happened, but in any case, this was publicly a, a sort of, has come out publicly. So that's 22 years ago. But the real change, the real change in the world came with two events in 2006, 2007. The first was the smartphone which up to that time you had to have a computer to access the internet, which you couldn't do it on a phone. The phones were there, but you know, there was some like WAP or something, or it didn't really work. So <clears throat> Apple and then uh, Google came out with their smartphones, and suddenly everyone, if you bought a smartphone, had access to the internet which today is 4.3 million smartphones, 4.3 billion smartphones, billion, yes. So, so basically, if you eliminate very old people and kids, that means everyone has a smartphone. And the other thing that happened was Mark Zuckerberg, looking at this, said, I'm going to take Facebook onto, I'm going to create a Facebook app. We'll be back to that yeah. <laughs> in a little bit. But because first, that's, a, a that's something we break. would like to dive deeper. <laughs> um, but um, the thing is, like, you guys are, I mean, I'm sorry, you guys. I'm, I have such a confidence with you that I'm calling you, you guys. You, you can say the you Estonians, guys. Are, are a digital people, digital country, and you have created this program, which is called Estonian. I understand during your presidency. I know I made up the name actually. But, oh, you did. Okay. But that's because you know I'm just a born marketer. <laughs> <laughs> I missed but, my calling. I shouldn't have been president. I should have been a marketer. <laughs> but what you did, you made the internet universal in this in this country. So that means that is I think it's the first country that that was in the year 2000. Well, which yeah. was very early on for the internet. Internet was big during 2000, the 90s. 2001, yeah. Well, I mean, basically, look, you want to know the thinking behind it, or is that for a later but, part? Well, the one thing that I wanted to, to point it out that you declared access to the internet as a basic human right, which was the first country in the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it sounds good. I mean, basically, yes, you can a public. It is a public good, I would say. I mean, I think it's, I mean, okay, these guys say it's a human right, but they don't really know what they're talking about. I would say it's a public good that should be available to all citizens. So we started already in the late 90s, um, this program where every town hall or town, you know, government, municipal government building has a, has a computer room where you can go. I mean, say, I want to use the computer and they go, okay, go ahead. And then, uh, then what we started doing actually in the late nineties also, when, or when it, you know, sort of late nineties or early two thousands, um, all, 
all these uh, local governments, I mean, they all put up Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi outside. So, in fact, I remember once I was somewhere way out in the countryside and I had to get an email out. So it was like, what's the closest place with a... With a, the closest town that has like a, you know that actually has a municipal building, so I drove there and then I got on the Wi-Fi and sent my email. We say you know how to meet a deadline, but the idea is that yeah, this is the kind of thing that in in it's a digitization is the infrastructure digitization of public services. Not I mean all, all the other the commercial stuff's going to happen anyway. And should happen uh, with private investment. But digitization of public services, governmental services, is to the, at least the first half of the 2000s what building autostradas, autobahns, inter, the interstate in the United States was in the 1950s and 60s. You have to invest in this to make I mean, because thanks to all of these highways that were built, you have, you know, had a massive explosion of, of commerce, which then, of course, made everyone rich, richer. Well, I mean, the same thing is true right now with governance and public services, that if you rely on a paper system or some really crappy system of, uh, you know, sort of that you, most countries have, then, then you will fall behind. That's... And this really hit me when I uh, I spent uh, after my uh, after I left office I spent three and a half years in at Stanford, at, living in Palo Alto. And Palo Alto is the mecca, the absolute center of the world of, for IT. So I'm in Palo Alto, and in a ten mile, twelve kilometer. Uh, Range. Um, I are the headquarters of Tesla, VMware, Apple, Google, Facebook, Palantir, YouTube. I mean, I'm just mis- and not to mention Sand Hill Road, which is where all the money is, right? I mean, so and so it's everyone wants to be there. Everybody wants to be there. Well, it used to be. Because right now people are moving out well, of Palo Alto and, to yeah. Austin and some yeah. other well, places. Right. But my, my point is that <laughs> it is the center of the commercial internet. That is there. true. And then I, I had to register my daughter to go to school in Palo Alto. And so how do you do that? Well, I have to drive three and a half kilometers or three miles, <laughs> whoever is listening. Uh, to the Palo Alto school headquarters. And then I have to take along my electricity bill. My electricity bill proves that I live in Palo Alto. And I have to take along my my passport, uh, show my visa. And then I, I also have to take along uh, something called a DS-2019 form, which you, I mean... I mean, I, since it's a form for visiting scholars, so, I mean, but they also wanted that. And so then I'm there, and there's a very nice woman who's sitting behind this desk, and she has all of these papers, and then she, by hand, fills out a 
thing for themselves, right? Not, I mean, she's not even on a computer. She's sitting there just writing this out. And I said, this is, this is, the, this is the center of the world for IT. And this woman is sitting here copying my paper documents by hand. And the only proof I have that I live in Palo Alto is my electricity bill. It's like, what is this? And I, and I said, you know, I mean, you can, as you can tell from my accent, I mean, I was educated in the United States. And so my parents immigrated, and I did too, actually, to the United States in 1957. And in 19, I don't know, 59, I guess, they had to register me for school to go to kindergarten or first grade or whatever it was. And they had to do the same thing, I bet. They probably, in order to prove they lived there, take along the electricity bill. And they probably had to show their green, well, I don't know if they even had a green, yeah, I guess they had a green card. And someone probably wrote out everything by hand in 1959. And here it is, 2017. And I'm doing it exactly the same way. So this is, this is the United States. And this is when I say that it's, I mean, here, it would be absurd, completely absurd. I mean, just ridiculous. Yeah, so kind of on the note of these giant companies all located in Palo Alto, in a talk you gave in 2017 at Stanford, you said that you were a techno-optimist until six months prior. And can you talk about what changed um, from building up all this infrastructure in the early 2000s um, and, and what changed your mind or maybe you, you changed your mind back, but how, how has your thinking evolved on that? Well, I think that we have, we have entered an unforeseen sort of mess and I don't see how we're going to come out of it. I would go back. Okay. Everyone was an optimist in 2011 when you had the Arab Spring. And the Arab Spring, I thought, was the culmination of the power of the Internet uh, for good. And so what happened then? I mean, there was a, a man who self-immolated and then he, there's someone with their mobile phone took a video. This never would have happened without a mobile phone. It went viral. This would have never happened without Facebook and so forth. And people all over the Arab world saw this and they rose up in their respective countries. And we saw, we saw revolutions in Tunisia, where it started, in Libya, in Egypt, in Syria, where the civil war started, a civil war that's still going on in Yemen, where there's still a civil war. And so you had this Arab Spring thing. And everyone was saying, see, this is the, this is the internet and the mobile phone are going to bring democracy to the world. Meanwhile, then you have like Russia there going, hmm, this is interesting. Now imagine that all of these people are doing what everyone says, see, without money, just civil society. With no money, they managed to do all of this. But imagine if you put money and the resources of the state behind this, maybe you can do even more. 
And that's exactly what happened. That after 2011, you see the weaponization of the internet and of social media. And three years later, during the, uh, when, when Russia annexed Crimea and moved into Donbass, they completely master, had mastered social media in different languages and they put out stories that were stupidly repeated by, by Western media. And since then, it's been just, if you pardon the expression, a shithole. Well, it seems like they've kind of changed the, the burden of proof almost from you don't need to convince somebody that something's true. You just need to put out so many conflicting stories that people start to believe that it's not possible to know the truth. Absolutely. That is what was pioneered by them. And there's a, there's a great book on this by a guy named Peter Pomerantsev, who actually did uh, Everything is... Uh, nothing, nothing is true and everything, everything is possible, yeah. right? That's, I mean, that kind of... But it, you, to see how it affected... For example, Western politics. I mean, what did Steve Bannon say when he said we, how to, I mean, what one needs to do in order to win? He said, quote, flood the zone with shit. So, I mean, he's taken this whole approach and run with it. And in fact, in 2016, he did rather well with it, right? I mean, so... So yes, in 2017, I was fairly depressed about what, where things were going and the, uh, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that we, the U.S. had elected a kind of a very strange person as president, but uh, that could do a lot of damage. And ultimately, as we know, into 2021, he did do a lot of damage, but that this was kind of a broader phenomenon. And as we see, we see sort of, uh, populists exploiting, you know, pushing out primitive ideas and hatred all over what we would call the liberal democratic West. Yeah, and, and you've mentioned the, the need, or at least questioned the need to use illiberal methods to preserve liberal democracy. And what, what well, do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, you're going to have to regulate social media. I mean, you're just going to have to do something one way or another. What that, what's the best way to do that? I do not know, and I'm not going to say. But certainly, uh, I mean, at least in the U.S. case, Section Twenty Two Thirty of uh, of the FCC law or Act, Federal Communications Act, is something that really has outlived its usefulness. I think you ought to be respond. I mean, companies ought to be responsible for what they put out there. So, but that's Europe. I mean, that's the U.S. I mean, there's also Europe. I mean, it's, it's a problem all over the place. But we see too many cases of abuse. I mean, you know, famous ones such as the military in Myanmar, Burma, sort of exhorting people to kill Rohingyas. I mean, sort of. On, on Facebook, you know, I'm sort of because I mean, in much of the world, people think the internet is Facebook, so that's all they look at, right? And so you have your own government saying, go kill Rohingyas, you know, it's like, well, this is, there's stuff that, I mean, this is very bad, and this, 
And the problem is that until 2006, 2007, and the mobile phone plus social media, and people were not connected, but now they are. And in fact, there's actually there's an experiment done by some journalists in 2017, and they said, okay, uh, because you can, you can buy, you can get access to groups. Okay, I want to buy an ad to people who are anti-Semitic, like Germany. And they didn't say Nazi, but they did say you know, everything that would qualify, you know, adore Adolf Hitler. And you put those in, and then you get, then you get, you know, three thousand, four thousand names, and all you ha- and you, I mean, you can then buy an ad and reach them. So it used to be that in the United States, for example, I mean, aside from Illinois, <laughs> except for Illinois, you had, you know, every town had some weird anti-Semitic, pro-Nazi wacko, right? But they didn't know each other. They didn't get connected. There was no, you know, Friends of Adolf page or anything because there was no page, right? Now you're getting social organization via, via social media, uh, in the way that um, in the past was almost impossible. I mean, there's a there, you know Carl Deutsch was this uh, sociologist who actually wrote a book called <clears throat> Nationalism and Social Communication about the rise of national sentiment in what is in the Czech what is today the Czech Republic, and it was basically it came about because as Czechs, who had been just peasants, started making money in the 19th century, and you had Czech businessmen, they wanted to watch theater in their own language, which because, I mean, it was, you know, the aristocracy was German-speaking, but they, were, they wanted to see theater in their own So they established the Czech National Theater. The same thing happened in this country and in actually much of Eastern Europe. And so social communication then was the th- was going to the theater because there were no movies, but obviously no internet. Well, today we all have this. You can just meet up with whatever bizarre, perverse idea or even perversion that you have. You have a Facebook page for Nazi, for lots of Facebook pages for Nazis, and you have, pay, you know, and whatever. If you're into, you know, we we you have mentioned faith. Facebook several times, so we just can skip Facebook because you are part of the real Facebook oversight board, which was recently created uh, like four months ago, if I'm not wrong, maybe five. Yeah. Um, what was the motivation to form this and its ultimate? Well, goal? I mean, the thing is to be. Yeah. Look, I mean, a lot of people just said, "Okay, Facebook is creating its own oversight board." I mean, it's like. Can you trust it? Nah, I don't know. Maybe you can. I mean, now they came out with their first report and it's like, okay, it's not bad. I not really can't jump on them. But, you know, I mean, it sounds bad, right? And so Carol Kalawater at The Guardian, who was kind of the, was the catalyst. She's for the, the one who broke yeah. the story of Facebook, well, she, of uh, Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I wanted to ask more about just like misinformation spreading um, because the the fake news part isn't really new. That I mean, there have been people like Lenin, Goebbels, who were masters of spreading yeah, fake I mean, information. The difference but, is the technology. Right? I mean, if you look at the sort of 
the famous case of disinformation, hostile disinformation, was that in 1983, the KGB planted a story in a, an Indi provincial Indian newspaper called The Patriot with a limited circulation about how AIDS was created by CIA to kill black people. That was this story. And so that was 1983. It took three years until it sort of passed on and sort of made its way up the food chain to, you know, being in Der Spiegel and in, you know, sort of like left of center European magazine. And then it hopped over the Atlantic and it was like 1987. It was already in the US media. This was before there's no social media, right? Social media today, it's instantaneous. Within uh, 24 hours of shooting down, of the Russians shooting down MH17, the Malaysian uh, airliner uh, that flew over Ukraine, it was going from the Netherlands. There were like 20 different versions that they were throwing out there. You know, the worst one was that they were all dead already in the beginning and the CIA had put 298 bodies into this plane and flown. I mean, it's like ridiculous, right? I mean, that the difference is in timing or actually in, I mean, the speed of things moving. You know, I think it was what? It was either Churchill or Twain who said that the, a lie has gone around the world before the truth even gets its pants on. I mean, so... I, don't, I would almost look at it differently in that the, the ability to use like big data and targeting algorithms actually buys you some time. So you have the ability to spread information really quickly, but you can keep it isolated to a smaller group and get more buy-in from that group and get them more committed to that set of information before it collides with the larger group. Whereas like, if you look at the means that um, maybe were available during like the Russian Revolution that like Lenin would use to, to like disseminate the newspaper, everybody, no matter their political opinion, is generally seeing the same information at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas with targeting, you can yeah. oh, you can with radio. Like I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, Lenin. Lenin always said, "Seize the telegraph office," but <laughs> but Goebbels went on radio, and uh, but everyone gets the same. And thing. films. And newspapers. Yeah, but I mean, it's... It was all over. Yeah, but I mean, radio is hard to avoid, yeah. right? I mean, you know... Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. But so so with like radio and newspapers, these are these are kind of easier to be controlled by the states. But with, um, with social media, a lot of like corporations and individuals now actually have the ability to spread information in a way that would have been previously reserved to nation states. Um, and... And likewise, it can go anywhere. So it's not just that it could be like between groups that have, that share some kind of physical border, it could be from Canada to Australia. And so how do you think about like different entities, whether they're individuals or companies or countries and what, what do borders and proximity even mean in a digital world? All right, on uh, sort of the asymmetry, of actors. Yes, this is true. In fact, you know, it, I mean, the most absurd case, and you should look up, look it up, because, I mean, there was a something, there was the Mirai 
DDoS attack in uh, October of 2016, which knocked out uh, websites on the east coast of the United States and the western part of Europe. And it, what it was, I mean, this is where DDoS attacks have gotten much more sophisticated. Instead of bots and botnets, it, uh, it hijacked IoT devices, you know, basically whatever. I mean, routers and also closed circuit television. And, and basically it was just out for a while. And then they fixed it, obviously. But it turned out this past year or last fall, it turned out it was... It was done by a PhD student at Rutgers who wanted to watch a soccer game, which was not being shown in the, in the United States. I mean, so one person knocked out East Coast of US, West Coast of Europe, and it was all for the most ridiculous reasons. So, yes, there is that asymmetry in ways, or, I mean, another example, which I use when I teach, is that there was one disgruntled employee some 15 years ago, I guess, in Los Angeles, who, who rigged the Los Angeles traffic light system. So they all went red on a Friday afternoon and he went to jail. But if you think about it, so if one, if he could turn them all red, could also turn them all green, he could turn them all green. And that is a mess that would take weeks to get out of and kill all kinds of people. And that's just one person, not very sophisticated at all. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about sort of, you know, uh, any of these, you know, solar winds hacks or anything. This is just like real primitive. So, yes, there's a huge asymmetry and you can do huge damage just as we have seen, you know, the Russians managed to manipulate a number of elections. I mean, how much, we don't know, but in any case, certainly the Netherlands referendum on the Association Agreement for Ukraine in 2015, the Brexit referendum, the U.S. election in 2016, the French election they tried with Macron, but the French were very clever and avoided it. But, and since then as well, but I mean, those are like the first big cases. What do we do about that? Well, we just have to recognize that's the new world that we live in, that individuals can do huge damage. Now, what was the second part of that question? Uh, how do you think about borders and proximity? Oh, this is a... I have a long lecture on this, too. I mean, basically, what... Warfare, since the first pre-hominid took a rock and hit another member of his species on the head and killed him, has been kinetic. If you remember, if you have seen the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, they're like this pre-humans, you know, kind of like halfway between ape and human. And sort of like, they're already social beings, so they're living in tribes or bands. And they, so, and they 
these two bands confront one another, and one guy, one ape, ape man, takes a bone and hits the other one on the head and kills him. That, I mean, this in the movie, that's the beginning of warfare. But okay, somewhere along the line, someone figured out how to use tools, a tool to kill someone else. That was kinetic. And up till basically this millennium, warfare has been kinetic. Mass equals, or rather, force equals mass times acceleration. Right, that's the second law of Newton, and where acceleration is the velocity divided by time, but ultimately what it is is distance divided by time square. Well, where are we today in the digital world? There is no mass, or at least the mass of electrons is like, I mean, not enough to do anything, and uh, distance is irrelevant. And time, at least on Earth, which is, you know, time also. It's, it's a matter of microseconds whether you send a message from Moscow to Estonia or from Moscow to you know, Canberra, Australia. It's no difference. So you suddenly have force equaling something other than mass times acceleration. So what does that mean? Well, on the positive side, what it means is that things like NATO become irrelevant, ultimately. Well, it, it will remain relevant because kinetic warfare is not going anywhere and they still have to use armies to invade and all that shit. But since, I mean, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uruguay is not in NATO. Japan is not in NATO. New Zealand is not in NATO. They're all liberal democracies. But this North Atlantic, because of you know, basically bomber range, fighter plane refueling requirements, um, tank logistics, troop transport, it's all geography and it's all because of, of distance and time. That's what it's based on. But in the future, you don't have to do that. You can have a the positive thing is you can actually have a, a coalition of liberal democracies that all, I mean, you, the, the assumption is, is not where you are, but that you are a liberal democracy, free and fair elections and constitutionally guaranteed rights and rule of law and respect for human rights. And so they can be like you know, South Korea, Japan, Oceania, Uruguay. I mean, you can have these countries that are all, that are all working together to, for cyber defense, um, which is not possible before because but the threats were not there either. But the threats have become when the threats become universal and the, they're no longer kinetic uh, or not simply kinetic, then you actually can create a, an alliance of democracies, which was something people have been proposing for a long time. But today it is actually possible.
Well, there was something very important last year when COVID came out massively all over the world. That was in March. I remember that I was reading several articles that people were saying, we should have a global government because we don't have borders, specifically talking yeah, COVID about COVID is like the internet. South, south and north, exactly. South and north, east and west, we were all united in the same boat and trying to figure out how to deal with this COVID crisis. Um, the thing is, like, governments, they were very reunited that time of chaos, especially during the first three months. So that's when it's, it's very specific, um, as you were saying. Time and space, it was very blurry <laughs> those three months. Well, what happens uh, is human nature is that you... When you are under threat, you band together. And what do you, how do you band together? In most places, it's in your country. So it's my country and everyone else is bad. We're not going to let them in. And where do we see, I mean, the restrictions today are, I mean, traveling here to Estonia. I mean, it. you have the Estonian requirements that you have to pass to get in. We took the test. <laughs> We're negative, PCR. <laughs> so, yeah, we know about that, which is... Um, but this is... Um, no, what I mean is that every country has its own rules. I mean, here, even the EU could not manage to come up with its own rules, and that is, it is the most effective international or supranational organization there is. And even they could not come up with, you know, and we see it today with, you know, vaccine passports. They have to agree on what is a, how do you do the vaccine passport? And I really hope they do it, but the point is that, it's not clear what the answer will be. This kind of brings brings us to the next topic about the organization of democracies, um, but not just the organization of democracies, because I think like even pre-COVID, there was this trend that online spaces and communities are increasingly real and they're not just virtual. And um, we're starting to see more kind of like governance of these online communities and so what does what does it mean to be a citizen of a community and how do these different communities actually interact? Well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of talk about these communities, but and then they say, well, they, they rival a state. I mean, I have a friend, a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, and he's really libertarian, right? And he's like, we're and along with Peter Thiel, they were like, we're gonna put a ship out 13 miles from the U.S. coast and we won't have to pay taxes and we have no government, we just have a government of ourselves, all these rich people. And, and I said, well, that sounds great. I, I mean, I'm not rich, so I can't do it. But so what do you do when you're on your ship there and it's all perfect and wonderful and, you know, weather's great and you're just... And suddenly... You look over the railing and there's a submarine. And in the submarine, this guy opens the hat and says, Dobre dien. <laughs> right? I mean, what do you do? Right? I mean, you don't have, you're like, oh, I don't pay taxes in the United States. I don't, have, I don't have to follow U.S. laws. But suddenly, you know, who's going to give you the fundamental security that your taxes go to, right? I mean, your taxes go to all kinds of stuff. But, I mean, one of the things is that 
the state guarantees you security. That is really one the sort of the birth of the state in its primitive forms is that you get security. Well, that's still like a, a physical that's still like a group of people who have physically gone to the same space. And, and I was well, like, okay, yeah, I agree. But basically, if you're not paying taxes and you're not you're not going to be getting any social services, you don't you don't get any rights. I mean, it's all it's basically civil society. That's nice, but it's not a it is not a country. So I, I think like maybe historically, people have tended to be like a member of a single society, which is like the country that they live in. And now people feel like they might be members of other communities, um, or at least like, at least me personally, like I've lived in what, like one, two, three, four countries in the last six years. So um, I, I might feel more actual community with like my colleagues or something than any particular nationality. And I would say that actually like these online communities or like organically formed communities would actually start to replace some of the the roles of the state, like welfare or like covering um, healthcare for for each other, um, because people feel more a member of some other community than just like the nation states where they live. Well, you already in terms of healthcare, you already do that if if you're have private healthcare, right? You just pay for it. I mean, that's instead of taxes to the state, you pay your premium or your your employer does that for you. Well, yes, but ultimately, you're not going to be bombed or shot because you're a member of the blockchain community, at least not yet. Uh, it could be well, hacks, though. Yeah. Whereas, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, but no one's gonna, no one's gonna say, okay, we're gonna go bomb this place i mean we okay we're gonna go bomb this place they're not saying okay we're gonna get you know we're attacking joe we're attacking this place you know that's kinetic warfare this is where i mean actually if you think about what i was speaking about before you in fact could imagine how someone's gonna oh we're gonna attack everyone who is tied to polka dot right death to polka dot <laughs> So they can attack, you can attack that community or, or some other community. I mean, whatever you might belong to. You know, I mean, the basic needs are fulfilled. The sort of most basic needs of uh, eating, procreating, and and survival are things that tend as still are strictly sort of local. I mean, yeah, unless you get, you know, long distance food and long distance sex, it's not going to happen. So if we back up to like Facebook and these communities and talking about like, I don't, I don't know if human rights is the right word, but it's public goods and kind of what, um, what are like, what are public goods in the digital realm and what is the responsibility of the, if you think of like, say, Facebook as kind of like, a nation state of the digital realm that allows community formation in it. Like what is the responsibility of platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Google? Um, and what are the rights that the members or users of those um, communities have? Well, that really varies. It's like politics. It depends on your preferences. I mean, look. Uh, oh, whose preferences? 
Well, I mean, I think that the data scraping that Facebook does uh, in order to deliver ads to you or that, that um, and the surveillance it does that we now know it does. I mean, just most recently, unless you give everything up to Facebook if, and you're on WhatsApp, they're gonna, you're going to lose your WhatsApp, you know, whatever WhatsApp's good for, the most recent iteration of this. I mean, some people don't care. Some people do care. I mean, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm more interested in news than really caring about targeted ads. So I always agree to whatever things you have to agree to when, because of GDPR, cookies, basically. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to buy, I don't buy things because of ads anyway. So I don't even buy things anymore. Coming back to Facebook, because I just wanted to dive a little bit in this because I think that this real oversight board is just amazing. The people that formed that board with uh, Roger McNamee. Yes, he was one of the earliest investors in Facebook, yes. I believe. Uh, Maria Reza, a, journal, a Filipino yes. journalist that I know very well because I just worked with her in the past and uh, Susana um, Suboff, book, yes, who wrote the book. I was who just wrote the book that you recommended to me like three years ago in Stanford, Surveillance Capitalism. So I know that you guys were very uh, critical with the real. I mean, you're the real uh, Facebook oversight well, we board. We call ourselves the real. The other one is just the Facebook oversight <laughs> board. We call ourselves the real. Facebook. But the, 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 the one that Facebook created, they just uh, had their first statement two weeks ago about Trump. Yeah, it's um, it's not. I mean, look, it's not bad. We just had severe doubts as to whether it's possible for a company to do that, right? Just to pick people and say, okay, now you're going to be our oversight board. I mean, oversight boards are usually done without the participation of the people who are being overseen, right? That's the whole. But I mean, as Joe was mentioning, you Facebook is about communities. That, that was the first success of Facebook all over the world. They created a community. Trump created a big community on Facebook, <laughs> and he leads that community. So on, on this real oversight board, what type of job are you doing currently? Besides Trump's and, and misinformation. Well, we were, the, we were waiting for the first report to see what they actually do. I mean, are they going to be? And they were, I mean, they were better than we, at least I thought they were better than I was expecting. I mean, what else can I say? I mean, of course, the oversight board, um, I mean, really dealt with one fundamental issue. I mean, some other things too, but one fundamental issue And when you read it, you see that, okay, actually, you know, there were things that Facebook wouldn't give them. They asked for certain information. And then you go, okay, well, this is agreed, was this not agreed? I mean, the problem is a fundamental distrust in something that is named by the company or the entity that says you're going to oversee my activities. It's like, well, you know, I mean, I, I want to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a, an oversight board for my behavior and I'll just pick people who just you know, don't pay attention to certain things, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, the, whether they did a good job on the, the latest decisions isn't really the point. It's the principle that you know, 
there should actually be an independent body. It's which is not. <laughs> Right. <laughs> kind of. Well, they call the Supreme Court. That was my, uh, Mark Zuckerberg that wanted to. Yeah. Well, I, I would. Court, it's not. Kinda... I mean, if 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 Facebook were a state, then it would be sub. It would have all. Con- it would have a constitution, and it would have. You know, you could. It would be the largest state in the world. Three billion well, people. Facebook is a dictatorship. If it, if it were a state, yeah, then yeah, it would be a dictatorship. Is, yeah. So it is not a Supreme Court. I mean, that's just bullshit. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, the sophomoric, simplistic statements made over the years. I mean, there's nothing worse than reading a Mark Zuckerberg statement, you know, trying to be philosophical. And it's like, you know, this is like... <laughs> I mean, this is... This is not even sophomoric. I mean, this is... I haven't taken intro philosophy yet, but I'm going to I'm going to act like I'm Plato. You know, no, no, it doesn't work that way. It brings so, me to a larger issue, but we can talk about that later. So, given the fact that right now we are overwhelmed with a lot of information on the internet, we do have freedom. But what's the what's the role of the free expression expression online? Because it's kind of tricky if you think about all of this social media. Well, I mean, free expression, free expression is, I mean, that's your right to say something, right? I mean, the problem that we have is that it's not so much with free expression, but rather the, the weaponization of that right to actually do damage by people who don't believe in free expression. So all kinds of lies from authoritarian governments, from from authoritarian sort of movements. Uh, so they all free expression, except those are precisely the people who, if they were ever in power or where they are in power, in fact, in countries, uh, they give you no freedom of expression. I'm a little dubious about the freedom of expression argument when it comes to anything other than uh, individuals. I mean, individuals, obviously, yes, you can say whatever you want. But I mean, as soon as you see a political party that is racist advocating, saying, this is my freedom of speech, no, you, you know, you don't. Not to mention, you know, propaganda outlets in various authoritarian countries. Well, Twitter is moving into block. Well, they have an experiment with blockchain, and that's why they want to, to do ta- what they want to tackle this issue of fake news on on the internet and their platform. Um, so they they are experimenting with BlueMark or Bluesky. I think it's a project. Yeah, but I don't understand how that would work, other than you would have certified news services. Which I mean, okay, that's okay. You can have certified news services, but. I mean, I think the, you know, back in 2016, we saw this strange phenomenon where people would make up, there would be made up newspapers, you know, sort of like, you know, the New York something, right? I mean, it wouldn't be Post or Times, but it would be sort of Courier, say. And then you'd have like a new, and then you have Gothic type scripts of New York Courier. People think it's a real newspaper. And then there's like some made-up story about Hillary Clinton. No one ever bothers to look at the newspaper, whether this newspaper even exists. I mean, those are the kind of things that you, I can imagine you can do. 
but I don't know. I mean, I I get the feeling often regarding blockchain. It's a mathematical. Uh, it's, it's a it's a mathematical creation in search of an application. But you know more about that than I do, Joe. So I, I guess as like a, a final topic. Um, oh, what I is much more to talk about? <laughs> um, what what is your outlook now? Um, how how has it changed since twenty sixteen? And do you think things are going in a better direction, worse direction? You know what I think our issue is is summed up actually in a different form in um, in an essay from 1959 by a guy named, a person named C.P. Snow, who was a professor of, uh, of physical chemistry at Cambridge University. But aside from being a professor, he was also a literary novelist. In fact, the term, the corridors of power, was invented by him. I used to think it was Shakespeare. It turns out, no, it was created by a guy, a professor at Cambridge, writing a novel, right, called The Corridors of Power, and that's how, now we all say, in the corridors of power. Well, anyway, he wrote that, and he invented the term. So he wrote an essay called The Two Cultures, and what he talks about is that there's, one culture is of science, and he was a member of that culture. And so he would sit around at his, you know, club at Cambridge with physicists and chemists discussing the latest and, you know, whatever 1959 quantum mechanics news was, but that's what he would do. But he also then would go over after dinner and go drink with the poets and the novelists and the Shakespeare scholars. And he was like, the, he said, oh, you know, I was like this person who could only one of that, you know, in, in that college at Cambridge who could actually do both where the physicists and chemists couldn't care less about the world of literature. And the people in literature that he would talk to, they kind of could care about what the physicists and chemists were doing, but they just didn't understand. Now, in 1959, we were living in an era when, where uh, your phone was plugged into a wall, and if you left the room or if you left your house, no one knew where you were. <laughs> and if you watched television, I remember this era, not 1959, I, I don't remember, but I mean, basically you read 1984 and there the television is looking at you. Well, it wasn't possible when I read 1984 and like 1971 or something, but you know, today, I, I had this little thing on my computer to cover up my <laughs> cover up my uh, camera because in well, fact, you have your phone and your phone can track your location. And as you know, well. No, I mean the phone <laughs> can track my location. My phone can listen to everything I say. I mean, all of this is probably can. I mean, I don't know if it is. I doubt it, but uh, it's potentially recordable by all kinds of people. Yeah, right? There's a panopticon problem, though. You don't know. Yeah, but my point is that this is so. We now live in a world which has been made possible by the scientists and is completely, I mean, is not at all understood by the rest of society. 
And we are, I mean, C.P. Snow talked about a problem of the university that today is the problem of the whole world, which is the people who are, I mean, there are the people in tech who know what they're doing and they understand it, but they don't really care about the ethics of what they do. It is clear that Mark Zuckerberg does not care one whit about ethics. I mean, it's only when he's forced to do something because it's a bad PR move. But I mean, if you read his you know, sort of statements, you go, okay, this guy has no clue. And if you look at you know, all the people who are concerned with ethics, they, they don't understand. I mean, you know, some of us understand how things work, yes. But I mean, we got to the point where and when it gets the AI, even the people who create the AI don't understand how it works. It just works, right? Just like a black box and you, no one even has, can look into it. So we're in this new world that has not existed before. You know, 300 years ago, you could know everything about everything that was known. Today, no, you can't. So here we are in a, in a, in a very new world and I don't know how we're going to get out of this because, you know, your ethicists, you know, your most trained ethicists, professors of philosophy, I mean, maybe some of them understand how blockchain works and vice versa. I mean, maybe there's someone who does blockchain. I'm just picking blockchain at random, but has, you know, sort of read the Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. But in general, I think that's a very small set of people in the world. So I think what you said about 300 years ago, you could know everything about everything. That was um, known. Yeah, that was known. I, I think that actually brings up another point, not just about technology, but about markets in general, because the, the formation of um, free markets and free trade kind of enabled specialization where you didn't have to know about everything. You could specialize in one very specific task and you do this, you respond to incentives and everything tends to work. But now with like kind of black box AI um, and the speeds that technology and communication is moving at, is this reaching a point where there's actually a breakdown or failure of the market to actually govern or direct resources? Well, in a sense, we already see this with the incredible income disparities that have been created with levels of wealth that, I mean, where private individuals living in Palo Alto have, have a greater income than the GDP of even medium-sized countries, let alone mine, right? I mean, so, I mean, this is... I mean, if you're worth almost a trillion dollars, I mean, there are not so many countries that actually produce a trillion dollars, right? I mean, it's like if income sum. That is certainly a breakdown, or I mean, it may be the, I don't know if it's a breakdown in the market, it's just, it's the ultimate, or it's the apotheosis of the market, which is that, but it's not going according to the kinds of rules that we think are fair in terms of distribution, right? I mean, it's income distribution. Like, uh -uh. Well, that's one of the reasons that the last two years I have heard about UVI all over the place, different projects that they've been coming out. Yeah, Even I, Canada is experimenting. Yeah, well, Finland tried, 
two years ago and they said, well, we're not going to do this. I don't know why. But I mean, I don't know enough about, you know, UBI. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of just in a very advanced welfare state, right? But if you have, if you have, you know, sort of individuals, you know, several thousand individuals producing much of the GDP and collecting it, and not out of like their sheer genius or anything, it's just you happen to be in the right place at the right time, right? And you, I mean, it's not as if you know you're. If you're worth seven hundred billion dollars, that you are in fact worth seven hundred billion dollars. I mean, just no, no, right? So, uh, I just thought. I mean, there's a small group of people in Russia have have are worth a third of the GDP of the country. I mean, it's the worst in of all the countries. That well, we don't know about China, but. But when you have, you know, China, the the Central Committee of the Communist Party has has like a hundred billionaires. I mean, that's pretty weird, right? It's the Communist Party. The Central Committee is, you know, like the top leadership. You have a hundred people who are billionaires. I mean, billionaires. It's the most capitalism country right now in the world. China. <laughs> More than the U.S. <laughs> oh, far more, far, far more. No, anyway. So I don't know where we're going. I mean, sometimes I get fairly depressed thinking that you know this is not sustainable and something very bad is going to happen. Something really bad. So I mean, what's what's most likely is that you know we become so dependent upon our digital world, the one I've been promoting my most most much of my life, and suddenly it crashes. And then what do we do? I mean, this is why you have all these people in Silicon Valley who call it quits and move to Idaho or Wyoming and go off grid and have no connection to the world. I mean, former, you know, sort of digital folks. So I don't know. But I mean, that's why I think that permissionless blockchain is the most secure way to be online. Well, I don't it's know. Distributed. Why? I mean, it's distributed. I mean, you don't have. Yeah, but if there's no centralized on, there's no authority online, who control. Yeah, but there's no if there's no online, if there is no internet. You just you know, imagine there is no internet. What do you do? Yeah, I just wanted to have one thing about the e-residency. Sure. I mean, okay. I mean, e-residency. What about it? Basically, it is comes out of a recognition that. Said, it's about, I'll give a longer talk about the nature of governance. First of all, I mean, the thing is that you realize that there are many things that the state is responsible for. And in the case of opening a bank account or ha having a company, it's always been, I mean, in a, it's, it's, on, it's based on you, the territory of the state. So if you live here, the state knows who you are and says, yes, you are a real person and you can, you can open a bank account and you can start a company, for example. Because the state, in a paper world, the state knows that. Now we move on to a digital world in which you can actually, all of the information that the state has on you, 
that allows you to open a bank account or start a company exists everywhere. And so you can check it. So instead of having territory, territorial-based identification, you have you have identification, but it's no longer territorially determined. And that's all it is. That's all e-residency is. Is that okay? Here I know Ursula. She lives in Spain, but the Estonian state says, okay, she's, this is her birthday, and this is her this, and we know she has no criminal convictions. Um, yeah, I mean, all that stuff. And so why not give her an identity in Estonia that allows her to open a bank account? And I mean, it's all EU rules, so it's, you know, all the transparency. It's not like she's laundering money. I mean, and just as we might look at someone who's suddenly depositing, you know, $5 million a day, who's Estonian. I mean, if you were depositing $5 million a day, if you're Spanish, it's like, okay, that's weird. But we look at both of them. But it doesn't really matter if we know who you are, right? So... So that's the idea of e-residency is that we have we have in a digital world can you, you no longer are bound by territoriality just as we were talking about defense. Now the bigger thing about e-governance which is the real step forward which has nothing which has I mean it's based on electrons but is that governance ever since it was invented and you can go back to maybe you know what five thousand years you had a governance or you had a government and most likely it was a nasty warlord who was and who was a, you know so we'd call a dictator today but a warlord but so what do you need if you have a state right i mean you need people to fight wars or to attack you need someone to provide food and someone to pay for the soldiers. I mean, the, well, someone to count that everyone's paying. So you need tax collectors. So that's like the three things you need. And since it was, in, I mean, that I think led to writing, was the need to keep records of how many, you know, how much wheat you got from this farm and how much wheat you got from that guy. and. And then you, how much you give to the guys in the army. And that then developed over thousands of years. And then you end up with, you know, your classic bureaucracy, you know, Austrian bureaucracy, probably the most famous one, right? I don't know how Spanish bureaucracy is. I just... Well, it's quite tough. That's a different subject. <laughs> but the point is that bureaucracy which is really the plumbing of a state. That's basically what, you know, so things move and happen. Uh, has always been a serial process. One, sequential. One thing, a paper, you go to an office, take, stamp it, send it to the next office, someone goes, looks in a file, stamps it, and, you know, the paper just goes through, and then you get whatever you're supposed to get or you're answering whatever you do. And what digitization has done 
especially with the distributed data exchange layer that we have, is a, governance becomes a parallel process. So, to give you what that means concretely, if a child is born in this country, the hospital comes and says, what's his or her name? And then you give it a name, and then this name goes to the population board digitally. It says, you know, whatever, name. Thomas Ilves, born 26 December this time. The population registry gets it and says, okay, your number is 353-1226-0219, which is, by the way, my number. <laughs> and then this number goes out. It goes to the health insurance. It goes to the municipality. It goes, to, I mean, it goes everywhere. So basically, you know, there's... When a child is born, you get health care, you are assigned a family doctor that usually is the family doctor of your parents. Uh, you, are, you are registered as living in a, the community where your parents live in, so you don't have to go take your electricity bill to the school board <laughs> because you live there and if you want to, you know, you can change it, but it happens automatically. It is a parallel process. You get everything all at once. You are, you know, pre-registered for like, you know, five years from now. You go to a, this. You have a kindergarten that you're guaranteed a place in, but you know, you don't have to go there. But it's just that all this stuff is done, and it's done digitally. If no human beings, even it just goes. And this was a and this the system. Uh, was actually, I mean, the actual mechanics of the system was created by this guy who uh, who had a kid born in 1999. And he said he spent the next week running to the, you know, birth certificate, health insurance, everything. He had to go run through everything. And he said, I never want to do this again. And now I'm designing an e-government system and I'm going to make sure that no one ever, and me essentially, because if I have another kid, will never again have to run around to all of these government offices to get this fucking paper that says my son was born. And so this is what e-governance does. It allows you, it makes governance a parallel process which speeds it up enormously and it becomes far more efficient and, uh, and something you could never do with paper governance. All right, Thomas Ilves, thank you very much for your time and for coming on Relay Chain. Thank you, Thomas. It has been a pleasure to be here in Estonia with you. Great. <laughs>